Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. But right now, it is all about celebrating Nada Disney. Yes! <laughs> I'm trying to make you feel as, as comfortable as possible because it's like, you know, this is getting a book out into the world is one of the, the hardest things to do ever. Uh, we know that certainly as a store. We certainly know that as a writing community, as a literary community. So we're very happy to have Aunt Neda here. She has lived in England, L.A., New York. She studied painting and sculpture and has worked in film, TV, and radio. Uh, she lives right in the neighborhood. Um, and let's congratulate Neda at Disney. Can you hear me? I, I mean, I'm right here. So um, I just want to tell you something real quick. I hit my face with my car door, so I have a lot of makeup on to cover it, so I look like I'm in a play. I just want to <laughs> let you that, let you know, because I'm vain, and I want you to know I have nice skin, Ashley. Um, so it, this was posted as a book of short stories, and it's actually not. It's a novel, and it's six chapters, um, each about one person, and it seems like it's a short story, but... Um, they intertwine and um, into each other's lives, and each one holds a clue to the other one's um, burning query. Um, and this one is Rodney. He is a production assistant on an episodic television show. And can I give? He has stigmata for no reason, um, but he's a PA, and the stigmata is sort of casual. Um, so this is him, um, this is about one of his jobs, and if anyone's been a PA here, one of your jobs is to take care of certain actors. Um, all right, Rodney. Rodney had been driving for what seemed like hours. He'd been stuck in traffic and really didn't see any way out of it. He still had lots of pickups and drop-offs. It was madness. The gloves were burning up his hands. His hands were sweating from the heat of the sun, beating through the car windows, down on the dark fabric of his gloves and the gauze underneath. Some days when he was stuck in traffic, he would just start crying. He would let himself go and let the tears rush down his cheeks. This would happen mostly if he'd been listening to talk radio and especially if he had if he was able to find some sort of religious show on the AM stations, somebody talking tender and kind, somebody nice, public radio people saying nice things, saying ni nice things gently would make him cry. So different from work, so different from the real word, world. It just made him cry, made him feel safe enough to cry and wonder when the bleeding would stop, when his hands would go back to normal. His cousin John wasn't too happy about the bleeding hands and didn't want to speculate about them, nor did he want anyone knowing. He'd gotten Rodney the job on the show and didn't want, didn't want to look bad. Rodney felt that he was star starting to really lose his mind. He never realized how much his hands meant to him, how important it was to have them 
be bare and able to breathe, almost like they were flowers and needed light and air and water. Having a wound like that on your hands, the very things you feel the world with, it was too much. It was getting to him, he thought, and yet he couldn't go nuts because there was no time for that. Hang on a sec. I think this is not the part I really wanted to read, but I'll just go on. Um, okay. So he sat at La Brea in Santa Monica and looked at the mall across the street, the outdoor mall where you could see some people sitting outside in the coffee shop. He wondered why anyone would want to sit anywhere near the street with all the traffic and drink their coffee. How could that possibly be relaxing for them? Knowing that people were trapped in their cars while they sat outside and drank their coffee. But they did, and so he watched them out there in the free air and wondered what sort of work they did to let them take a coffee break at four in the afternoon. Not just one where they drank some of the, some of the office coffee in the hallway, but one where they actually left their office and went and sat down somewhere. Even though he wasn't in his office, he was definitely working. He certainly wasn't lounging around anywhere. He wanted to know about the kind of work where you really care, where you bust your ass the same way he did at his job, but you were proud and happy at the end of it. He suddenly felt stupid because, because he believed that doctors had the kind of job, that kind of work. But stupid people couldn't be doctors, so they had shitty jobs. He had always assumed it might be fun to work in show business because it just seemed so glamorous and exciting, but he found that it wasn't really all that different from construction. Being in production was strange because at the end of the day, you didn't know what to be proud of. He felt confused and lost about it and just wanted to sleep, but all he did was dream about work and dream about all the voices and the sound of the walkie-talkie in his voice. Somehow, once you were in showbiz, you couldn't get out. It had once made him really feel really special. Everyone called on him for everything. He was starting to think that the special wasn't in a good way, but in a way that he'd become so useless in every other part of his life that work was the only place where he was valuable. He wondered if he gave it if he gave it up now, what the hell would he do with himself? It paid well, and a job and a job is a job. He knew he had a job that everyone else in LA wanted to do, but it still felt like being in a dream all by himself all day long. Rodney looked at his hands and realized that the steering wheel was wet. He looked at his gloves. The blood had seeped through the gauze, through the lining, and through the thick gloves onto the blackness of the plastic steering wheel. Then a drop of it fell down and hit, hit him on the knee. Luckily, he was wearing shorts, so there was nothing to stain but his own skin, his own deep skin with the, with, with the blood on top of it, looking like a bit of raspberry sauce. He pulled over and rested his head on the steering wheel then looked around for a sporting goods store or a drugstore or something. He'd had to start over, buy another pair of gloves and more gauze, clean and rewrap, even though the wound never, never seemed to, to infect, no matter how dirty he let it get. It just seeped blood, 
And in the past week, it had gotten so you could see right through to the other side of his hand. He just couldn't bear to tell anyone. It was so crazy. He imagined they might put him in a cage at a science school, or maybe the government would kidnap him. In his imagination, it was never good. It was always bad. And every scenario ended with there being hard, cold proof that he was a freak and not like everyone else. And that would be the end of that. So he found a drugstore, pulled into the back parking lot, and headed in quickly thinking, Jesus Christ, if I am the Messiah, shouldn't I be doing something more important than changing the bandages on my hands and picking up Xerox ink? and jet ink for the copier and pick up lunch for actors and tampons for producers and gifts for that fool's wife? Is this my purpose? One of Rodney's job descriptions was to take care of Chris Campari's every whim. It was not as difficult as, difficult as, it, as, it, sound, as it sounded. Chris Campari did not have too many unusual whims. He was quite predictable. He had steady... He had a steady stream of repetitive whims, the same stuff over and over again in rotation, and Rodney loved to do these things for him because Rodney loved Chris Campari, and Chris Campari loved Chris Campari, and he even loved Rodney a little. Chris Campari liked his coffee a certain way from Starbucks, and he wanted it around the same time every day. Chris Campari liked to occasionally go to strip clubs, during times of stress, this would be more than occasionally and sometimes just ever so slightly more complicated than sim simply going to the strip club and leaving again. Chris was always on some sort of diet. Even though the diet changed, Chris did not change in relation to dieting. He would discuss at length, or rather talk at length, at Rodney, thinking that Rodney was somehow responding about what he wanted from his body and why this diet was the new thing that was going to give him exactly what he needed. Then he, would discuss with, then he would discuss with Rodney after the gym how much better he felt. And then he would discuss with Rodney on a soundstage after missing a few days of gym time how upset he was with himself, but that it was okay. He would be back on track soon. And then there would be the quiet non-discussion as he would send Rodney out to get pizza and donuts. Chris Campari was very, was very into grooming products and waxing the surprising amount of ginger hair that grew on his back. Rodney was in charge of making sure that he got all the needs and interesting things that he wanted, all the lotions and potions for his face. Rodney arranged the Botox injections that occasionally helped things out a little and the outpatient thing for the tip of Chris, Chris Campari's nose that he decided was drooping with age and needed to be turned back up. The discretion it took so, to step off the lot to have the little bit of surgery done and the terrible flu that had to be invented in order to buy and sell some recovery time. And finally, there was Chris Campari's little son, who was entirely raised by a nanny in a preschool called Kid Heaven. Rodney would occasionally have to go and check on the little boy or pick him up or drop him off or simply take some sort of person who Chris Campari would occasionally hire for the preschoolers as a gift, a person with some kind of skill to impart, on, to impart for the day 
a ventriloquist, a painting teacher, or most recently, a life coach, followed by an art acting coach who showed the three-year-old's method acting techniques. Rodney loved Chris for his enthusiasm. Even though Rodney did almost all of the talking in their relationship, he did find it difficult to go on without Rodney. So this meant steady employment for Rodney, and in some ways this gave Rodney a sense of purpose. It made him feel loved. He felt that he had a reason to be there, skills that he was being paid for. He needed to feel the love of being needed. This was some point, this at some point would foil him professionally, but at that moment it served him well. At the beginning of things, all the assistants really believed that they were special to Chris Campari. Later, they would all find that he bonded briefly with anyone who was able to provide him with all his needs at any given moment. It was not personal. This is the greatest tragedy of the enabler the false belief that they are indispensable. That's it. <laughs> what do I do now? You know, I started this a while ago and put it away and picked it up and it just, it came and went and I really didn't intend for anyone to read it. Um, but it, you know, it seemed to call on me and then it just fell into place. It did its own thing. Um, I don't remember writing it, which is a very weird thing to say. Sometimes I'll be reading it and be like, oh my God, this, this is pretty good. Um, <laughs> And that, I'm that way with all my writing. It's just once it's out, it's out. Um, so there's no, no process. I, I don't, I didn't have one with this one anyway. Um, with my new book, I'm a lot more conscious, mostly to answer this very question. <laughs> so that's it. Yeah, I can. That's that's. I'm very excited about writing it because once, thank you. Once this is done, it's done. Um, the new book is set in Las Feliz entirely, almost entirely. And you know how Las Feliz Boulevard? There's the south side and the north side, and they're very different. And um, the north side is sort of Tony and people. You know the park and the fancy houses. And the south side is restaurants, apartment buildings, etc. And I found the twain don't often meet other than people going to um, hike or deliver stuff and the people on the north side coming to get groceries and go to dinner. None of them live on each other's side. And so the book, um, it's about different women in the hills well-to-do women in different parts of their relationships, beginning, middle, end, and they're lonely for the most part. And, um, and slowly through um, interaction with people on the south side, these, these two sides start to meet in a, in a strange and surprising way. And, um, you know, whether it's sexually or friendship or conflict, and uh, I think 
the main thing is about I think there's there's this idea that people who work hard are the salt of the earth, and people who are wealthy are terrible. And uh, and in this book, it's it's difficult to say who's good and who's bad, and things happen, mayhem ensues. And uh, like my book, if you read it, it's got some magical realism like the stigmata. The new book has a talking squirrel who's somebody's dad, and we don't talk about why he's a squirrel. But he does give good advice. And, uh, and I'll tell you, I don't know, I feel like I'll just let you find out more when you read it. Hey. Um, you know, I think, um, again, like the north and south side, um, there's this, there's a sort of preschool that you can afford, and, um, it's not necessarily for the kids. It's like people going to the dog park to socialize, and these are those kind of preschools, and my daughter did go to one of these, and, um, they they did exactly this, you know, you would have professionals come in and, you know, try to teach them things. Like the, you know, it goes on about the method acting teacher. And, it, you know, children are always method acting. <laughs> They're completely unaware. So some of the absurd, absurd attempts to justify the tuition, which could be for college. Um, and it's funny, and it's very, you know, New York, L.A., I'm not sure if it's in the Middle West very much, but it's just rich with absurdity, so it was fun to write. But um, yeah, my daughter's in a, in a very similar elementary school now. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there was a fairly well-known artist who went there and um, spent a few days doing this work with them. And, you know, obviously the, ki the kids are terrible, but I think it meant a lot to the parents to have this, you know, say, this guy who shall remain nameless help their children, you know, and the guy mostly did it for them. Um, and it looked great on Instagram and all that. And they, they had a musician in that way. And some of, the, some of these people are parents. And they help with fundraising quite a bit um, because they're well-known. I don't know why. It, I think it's stupid. <laughs> I, it probably isn't. Maybe it's actually lovely and, um, and helpful. But I, I don't think that way. I always find that. <laughs> I don't know, the bad part maybe, I'm not sure. I didn't grow up that way. Yeah. It's about freedom and about let them do what they do, and it's play. But yeah. it's really like, for example, people holding hands and singing. Like, I think that's kind of different. 
Yeah, and the parents socialize and and so, so forth. And you know what? Who am I to judge? It, it's yeah. I mean, it's a lot of people who work in similar um, areas, and I think maybe it's difficult to socialize with civilians. I don't know. Um, but I always feel like I'm an observer and a narrator, um, even though I'm a participant. So, um, yeah, it's very different from the New York um, sensibility. It's it's very much about freedom. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really great to be in it. It's like being embedded in the army. <laughs> as a journalist, Uber first, and then. Yeah, I, it was 500 pages, and there were characters that just had to go, and they were mostly characters that felt um, contrived, like they were just, you know, they were bringing people to other people. And I think I was very attached to the book being linear. Um, and once they were taken out, it became really interesting. Um, you, you know, I trust the reader to fill in the rest. And I do think most art isn't finished until the observer, the reader um, becomes a part of it. You know, it's just then it's closed. Um, but yeah, I think these people just got filed away in my subconscious. I never thought about why. They would just pop in my head. And they, w they were, you know, collages of different people. There's no one person. And, um, you know, a few people have said, oh, this reminds me of that person. I'm like, you're right. That's so strange. Um, like, there's a, there's a really horrible um, wardrobe or costume department woman in here, and uh, you know, someone said, "Is that what's her face?" I'm like, I don't think so, but there are a lot of horrible people in uh, the costume department, except except us three. Oh, sorry. Um. Definitely the horrible costume person. Um, that was delightful to write um, because it, it isn't me, but it's the fantasy of how I could be if I didn't, if I wasn't me, if I, if I didn't give a shit about anything and I was confident enough to be horrible, which I think takes a certain amount of self-assurance. Um, but like the really sweet guy with the stigmata, not at all me. Um, but there's little bits of, like, you know, um, Chris Campari is like my first boyfriend, who's, you know, who was, who's now famous. And I, he's so <laughs> cool that I told him, I've written a book and you don't look good in it. It's based on you. He's like, that's awesome. He didn't even care it's as long as he was in something. And, um, and so I find that delightful about him. That's sort of, I like people who are just completely who they are, undiluted. Um, and so, you know, there's bits of me, um, if I was not diluted with, um, with temperance in all of them. So that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah. 
Um, I had, I, like I said, I had no process. I would pick it up and write a little bit and put it away, you know, over years. It was just sort of a thing in the drawer that I wouldn't think about until I'd run across it. But then when, um, then suddenly it really presented itself and it took me a few months just to finish it. And it was nothing like it was at the beginning. Um, and I was just surprised, like the, this had been simmering quietly by itself and then it popped out. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and no method, I, I'll go for a long walk, I'll think about things, I'll run home and write it down. I mean, in a way, I don't think I, I don't think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as someone who writes stuff down um, before it's gone. So, yeah. What was the other one? Um, in a lot of ways, my parents and there, I'm a first generation American. And my parents were of the artist class, as a lot of these people are, but they didn't succeed the way these people had. And, you know, I, I did uh, work study, I got scholarships, I had loans for college. Like, no one ever really, like I was trying to tell my daughter, who's eight, that I have no memory of anyone ever making me breakfast. <laughs> I think I just learned, you know, it never occurred to me. Um, that, you know, someone would get up and lay out a breakfast for you. It, it seemed sort of um, like a luxury. It's like, these people, wow, they make their kids breakfast. And then I, I found out that was normal. Um, so it was that kind of thing. I was very, um, like you had to go and be a go-getter because no one was going to move things out of the way for you. So that, that was very different. And it's been hard for me to see um, how easy it is for the children, like even my own. It's, I have a certain amount of um, resentment and jealousy. Like, you get everything, you know, and I do a lot of when I was a kid, blah, blah, blah. And I can see why parents do that now. It's, uh, it's just an impulse to let your children know about your suffering. <laughs> it's delightful. <laughs> right, that's it. Yeah? Um, they were just sketches. That's why I would pick them, pick it up and put it down. They, they weren't interesting. And then the last time I saw it, it, for some reason, whether it was my experiences, um, over the years, you know, I'd been, I'd gotten married, I had a child, I'd had more disappointments, more hope, more loss, more happiness. Um, Suddenly, the, the characters were no longer fiction. They were just like, oh, um, I, know, I know these people just because I've been, you know. Sometimes um, I'll go in a room and somebody will be very different than me and some people are talking and I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? And then I realize at some point, I'm gonna be every person in that room. Um, and that's really interesting. So 
by the time I got, I got back to it, I realized at some point I had been every character or had those experiences, and then it was easy to really flesh it out because I knew, or I think I knew what they were thinking. So. Well, the great, <laughs> the great part is it's not linear. Um, there's no beginning, middle, or end. I mean, you could read this, um, read the chapters in any order, and nothing would change. It would be the same outcome. They can't escape their destiny. And so I knew it was over just, I don't know why, because they, you know, they didn't resolve anything. Um, but I think as the reader sort of realized that, and um, I had a few people read it, and I thought I, I needed to write more, and they're just like, no, it's fine. And um, yeah, I think I, I was also sick of it. I was like, it's done. <laughs> and, uh, and it turned out to be the right moment, yeah. And, um, and again, like I said, um, a, the reader is the missing piece. So I had to just give up the missing piece to you. I was like, I'm determined to find it. And it's like, no, that's not my job. It's your job. <laughs> so that's it. Hi. Um, you know, it was, it was at a part of, it was at a, this was like maybe 14, 13 years ago when it first, like, I wrote it down. And it was an interesting time in my life. I, uh, I didn't know where I was heading. I didn't quite understand where I'd come from. I had um, all these dreams of where, what I wanted. And so I paid a lot of attention to other people. And, uh, and I think for me, once I got everything I wanted, I, I started paying less attention. And so by the time I got to the place where I could pick it up and finish it, um, I had realized all the things I wanted were ridiculous. So I had to go back to paying attention. I don't know if that, I've forgotten already what the question was, so I just kept talking. I'm sorry, that's. Um, I think I just had watched people, um, you know, and I wasn't, yeah, I, I just watched and filed. You know, sometimes I think the subconscious mind is this amazingly thorough secretary, but who also loses the files. And at some point, they're found again and uh, mixed with other files. I could go on with this metaphor all night. Um, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it just does itself. I do think that everyone is sort of has a novel or two in, the, in their minds. Um, the only difference is that um, people who write just write it down. That's the only difference. Like, I write it down. But in everyone's head, I think the, the novels are thorough and perfect, and you don't have to be a writer to, you know, you have stories, right? Um, that maybe, I, I certainly have stories that I tell myself over and over again. And, um, you know, I just, there are people in your head that you need to write about. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Is that bad? 
So, yeah, I, I actually agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think existentially, everyone's the same. I think it's about um, the tools that are available to some people and not other people. It's, it's a lot more superficial. I don't think um, either side is superior in any way, but, you know, some people get away with a lot because have, they have more lawyers. Some people are exposed to a lot more things because they can afford it. So it ends up being the worldly things that get you to a certain place that's ultimately meaningless. But the fact that some people can probably um, be let off for murder um, and some people can't is a pretty big distinction. you know. And actually, in my new book, <laughs> where... Um, you don't know who's good and who's bad, and some of the salt of the earth people turn out to be um, the the not good people who victimize the wealthy people. But at the end of the day, the wealthy people always win because um, the last line in the book is, "Don't worry, just listen to your lawyers." So that should depends on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The title is, um, I was, I don't know why, I, I, I'd heard somewhere that there had been an experiment, um, and this was in the 60s, where they'd been trying to revive a certain wolf population, and uh, they, um, there was an island, Coronation Island, and it's like four miles of whatever, and it had lots of deer, and they got a bunch of wolves of both gender, um, and just dropped them off, threw some meat and pointed at deer, whatever, and left. And they're like, they're gonna repopulate and they're gonna be here. And they came back a year later and um, the wolves were all dead. And, and they called what they did planting wolves. They had planted them where they didn't belong. And, um, and they came back and the wolves were dead and they did autopsies and they'd ended up eating each other. So, you know, when the, the deer kept, it was their turf, they knew what to do, they kept going the, sh you know, taking the shortcuts and the wolves didn't belong there. So eventually they started to die and cannibalize one another and, you know, um, planting anything anywhere where it doesn't belong leads to a little self-eating. So that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. 
Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.